All right. Welcome to this episode of The Underside of Power. I'm Mark. Hey, and I'm Sean. And you were just in Massachusetts. Yeah, over just got back the, from the United States. Over over the last weekend and previous week, there for business and pleasure, as I understand it. How was Boston? It was pretty cool. Um, I started in Amherst, a small town west of Boston, like three hours west. Um, for most of the week, I was going to a conference there for work. Mm-hmm. And then Boston was for the weekend, so I, I extended the trip and uh, paid my own way to have a little vacation there after all the work stuff. And, you know, Boston's a cool town. I, I actually want to go back, but uh, it wasn't really what I expected. Mm-hmm. It, some things that I, I – some preconceptions I had going into it uh, were kind of disproven. So oh, it wasn't really what I thought it was going to be, um, but I had a great time. Well, it was really nice. Well, by all means, tell our audience, what is the – Three top things to see in Boston. Hmm. To the camera. Well, for a little context, I've been to uh, quite a few American states, probably 10 or so by hmm. now. And um, You know, the 10 that matter. The, the, the main... There are only 10 American states that matter. Well, you know, <laughs> I've gone to the, you know, most of the interesting ones yeah. so far. Um, most of the ones that I've wanted to see. Now I have to kind of tick off some of the more niche ones. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm so sorry, Delaware. <laughs> Someone said Delaware when I was there, and I said, oh, is that a city? Where is that? And they were like, oh, no, Delaware? And I don't think they had known. There was somebody new to the group. I don't think they had known that I was from Canada yeah. yet, and they were, like, looking at me like I was, like, like had no idea what I was doing. some kind of illegal? I was like, hey, there's 50 states. I can't know all of them. But, no, I would say the top three, uh, to your question, always in my top three for every American state I've visited has always been food. Because there's always something that I can find there that's either trendy or yep. like is part of kind of the immigrant community where it's like, oh, this is like authentic so-and-so food. And mm-hmm. at Boston was no different. The food is awesome. And whether it's like the hipster parts of town where they've got <laughs> cool cafes or whether it's, you know, the Italian part of the city in North, North Boston, um, that's always in my top three. Wonderful. Um, I love seeing the coast and kind of watching sailboats and that kind of yeah. stuff. So they had a lot of sailing and it's very windy there. And um, I always like to walk along the coast and check that nice. stuff out. Just kind of natural beauty, seeing the animals. But you know what's cool about Boston is actually we spend a lot of time in um, in museums. And I don't hmm. know if that's touristy or not. And I try to kind of just – my first day there, we just wandered for hours. We wandered into the city and just checked out everything we could kind of see. I feel like a city with Boston, though, it's almost required because of its history in, like, the American War of Independence. Oh. So I think that – that would be one of those places that you would be like if you're going to a museum in Los Angeles that's like not an art museum. Yeah, it, you know, it's like unless borderline you want to learn about the gold rush and maybe a little bit of indigenous genocide, that might be fun. Yeah, um, if so, that's something that is fun. <laughs> but I think interesting they, at the very least. But I the, think if you talk about the East Coast, though, like th- there's a lot of like um, early. United States history there. Yeah, the New England stuff, they really laid on heavy. Yeah. Um, which kind of, you know, one thing that took me by surprise is there is not a lot of strong accents there. Mm. People speak the way we do, typically. I mean, there's a oh, few Boston sucks. accents that I heard. There's quite oh. a few that I heard. I went to the JFK Museum, which they're, was fantastic, by the way. They're muscling and in on our territory here with the neutral accent shit. I know, they got a very neutral How accent. How are we going now. to get broadcasting jobs in this economy? <laughs> but the JFK Musician Museum was really cool, and I realized, oh, yeah, he totally has a Boston accent. Oh, does he? he? He's Irish-descended, uh, Catholic family, hmm. uh, lived in Boston all his life, um, wow. and he's totally got the accent. Um, 
And oh, that museum is actually really interesting. I have a, kind of a renewed um, bit of a respect for JFK. Okay. Um, after that, that was really cool. You know what? He wasn't mounting illegal invasions of countries aligned with the Soviet Union, but hey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to have some sympathies to the crisis uh, of that time. With, I guess so. With the level of expansion the Soviet Union was doing. But yeah. hey, at least Nixon took the brunt of that um, issue because guess, yeah. to be fair on social issues and other things uh, uh, JFK was quite um, yeah this is true he was quite yeah. quite like civil rights civil rights was like one of the areas in which he shined from my understanding that he was totally quite, quite sympathetic and he could have turned out to be a warmonger eventually but when you look at how he handled mm-hmm. the Cuban Missile Crisis I don't think he's much of a warmonger it's kind of cool yeah but yeah I don't know top top things I love the I love the ocean I love the food I, the museums were cool and you know hmm. every, every city I go to in the states I love to wander you just find the especially a yeah. city like that they have a fantastic railway system they got a subway uh, just like yes. just like New York City which oh, I've been to three sense. times and when you come from a place like Edmonton with very poor public transit the the subway in Boston is fantastic you can get you know anywhere and then you just start walking and there's the Boston um, kind of in the middle of the downtown they have the common which is a big park mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they have the public garden. And all around that area, there's cool restaurants, and you can just walk. I'm sure the architecture also is very, very inspired and sort of keeps to form. You'll have to show me some pictures. I'll show you the pictures later because the East Coast, you can tell it's got that New England vibe 100%. But you know what blew my mind about Boston? Hmm. So I said it it wasn't really what I expected. And what shocked me is I'd only ever been to New York City before in that region. Yeah. And so I started in Amherst. Amherst was a very quiet university town at University of Massachusetts um, for an academic conference. Um, that I didn't have any expectations coming into it, but Boston, I thought it was going to be big city, really busy. Uh, like New York, I thought everyone's going to be dressed really well. It kind of makes you feel underdressed everywhere you go, kind of thing. But Boston was very relaxed, laid back, hmm. um, equally as left wing as New York. I would say they got a lot of like the gay rights movement kind of started in that region, which you can hmm. tell prominently. <laughs> um, uh, but the thing that blew my mind is it's not very busy, it's not very hmm. hustle, and um, the New York like. Uh, kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, but the the, the kind of the brashness and the rudeness <laughs> that you see in New York, and kind of the rush that's going on, and like the attention to dress. The hustle. Boston's a lot more laid back. It's a lot more hmm. chill, which makes sense when you I found out. I found out after I got there, they only have six hundred fifty thousand people oh, in the city. Really? In the city, and then the wider metropolitan okay, area yeah. is about five million. Compared to New York, the city itself is ten million. Right. And I was like, oh, hmm. There you go. Well, that's how you get a chill city. But it was beautiful. Loved it. I recommend it. Um, great place. It's pretty cool. I'm gonna have to visit the uh, the East Coast of the United States. Only ever been to Florida in that area. And we as we all know, Florida is there. like Flor- Florida is like the weird bastard offspring of the United States. It doesn't that, even feel that's like, like it's like a little it's like a little inbred and it's like a little off to one so like one leg's shorter than the other and <laughs> you know if you don't watch it it will wander into traffic and kind of things so yeah totally not, not that I dislike Florida but it's Florida's a weird state from when I visited Orange County so but mm-hmm. um back way back from the Lots east coast of swamps then, into, yeah so many fucking swamps I can see all the swamps everywhere oh god not the swamps. So back from the East Coast into landlocked Berta. So on our last episode, we were discussing royalties, taxation strategies, how Alberta, like, to put it likely, totally screwed the pooch how we got on that one. The the story behind how we got fleeced. Yeah, and I think the thing that sort of, th- that I found weird was, like, how extreme it all was. Like, how extreme these policies were relative to the rest of the continent. Like, nobody was doing what we were doing. Right. In terms of like letting these companies slide out the door with like huge profits, billions of dollars, very low royalties, very low taxes. Um, They even bought the land on the cheap, basically. Um, And so 
while we were talking about how extreme that is, this week's episode is going to focus on the topic of extremism in the province in Canada more broadly. Um, and especially that that vein that's become very in vogue recently, this sort of alt-right, you know, neo-fascist, white nationalist, or, um, you know, those ethno-state people. Mm-hmm. Like um, nativist kind of... Um right-wing populism, they sometimes yeah, call it. Yeah. And the tricky thing about these terms, too, is how broad some of them are. I mean, what does mm-hmm. alt-right even really mean? Neo-fascist, so, basically. I would I would argue that alt-right people are fascists. I would argue out, that out and out. Yeah. A, a lot of them are, but what about the ones who are, you know, internet trolls? What about the ones who, like Jordan Peterson, who don't have a full-on white nationalist streak in them, who might not even be alt-right? Mm. This will maybe take up part of the conversation as, um, as we move into it. My, my what exactly do these terms constitute? Exactly. It's important. So we'll get there. So yeah, so these are more traditional forms of extremism, like bigotry-motivated violence, rise of far-right-wing groups, and a new renaissance of nativist thought. Um, really Nativism's though, a good yeah, catch-all. Really, though, we should be talking about abortion um, and anti-abortion groups on the continent because that's really in vogue right now, but that is not the episode we have written here, so we're going to come back to it probably on the next episode because um, it's it's you know we'll probably have missed the boat on that one, but you know at least we will we will wave it off well, with the kerchief. Having prepared for this um, kind of hate group white nationalist episode, we'll I guess we'll tackle this first. But I think in, in a week or two when we look at the abortion issue, I think it'll still be in the news. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're looking at a long term um, yeah. legislative looking constitutional two step. It's going to happen. So. so uh, yeah, so anyways, historically in Canada, violence against marginalized groups uh, had been perpetrated by the federal government, by and large. Uh, so this is to the indigenous peoples of Canada. So this includes various wars, genocides, child abductions, land thefts, apartheid regimes such as the reservation system, etc. Um, and people would argue that that kind of goes on to this day, right? Um, there was a Japanese... To in- some degree, yeah. To some degree. Yeah. The, um there was the Japanese internment during the Second World War, including the total confiscation of property and housing them in concentration camps because they may be uh, um, alien combatants who are feeding intel to the Japanese Empire at the time. Um, Oh, and not talked about enough, in my opinion, the Canadian slave trade, um, which occurred while Canada was still a dominion of the British Empire. It took place between the 16th and 19th centuries. Um, and slavery in the Dominion of Canada was abolished in 1833, only 30 years before the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States. So really, we do have, like, there's a history of this here. It's, um, of course, colonial in nature. It Just like every, you know, colonial state. Yeah. Typically, yeah. There's, there's, there's some of that. I think it's good to highlight it because Canada sometimes gets away with pretending that that didn't happen. And, and I think that's a really severe issue is that we, we like to... Pre- pretend that Canada has somehow been like, you know, this multinational supportive social welfare state since its inception. But in reality, it, it's a it's a history pockmarked by brutality. Mm, totally. Um, I mean, the, the objective uh, point based system of immigration didn't, didn't come into force until the 20th, 20th century. Yeah. So, so, so this before isn't then, new. this isn't new. They were selected to say based the on least, different right? criteria, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so but now we're kind of facing a new threat, though, which is homegrown right-wing extremism, much of which is based around white nationalism or white identitarian movements, right? Which is the same thing that we're seeing in Australia, in the United States, in Europe, both Western and Eastern. Um, it's, it's kind of everywhere where, you know, Caucasian people are, mm-hmm. by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this kind of, there's so, there's, it's starting to become a list 
of incidents and issues. So there was the Moncton shooting of 2014, uh, in which three RCMP officers were murdered and two more were injured. Uh, the infamous Quebec mosque shooting uh, in January of 2017, um, plus two lower profile incidents that happened recently in, in both in Edson, Alberta, of all places. Uh, there hmm. was a 2018 arson attack against a mosque. And earlier this month, May 2019, um, a man drove a stolen vehicle through a government building. And then before he was apprehended, he graffitied the inside with anti-Semitic messaging. So... This is starting. This is starting to pick up. <laughs> and this is only the the big highlights of the actual actions taken. Of course, mm-hmm. there's been tons of protests, tons of public demonstrations, mm-hmm. um, public you know s- speeches um, on the on the side of the, this kind of right wing movement. Um, so so yeah, we're seeing like of course we've come a long way with the way the government treats minority groups, but all these these private citizens, the way they're they're coming out and mobilizing mm-hmm. in this way, which may eventually lead to the election of right wing populist regimes. This is this is a real resurgence of something that um, has been dormant, you know, for a couple decades, uh, in a way where it wasn't trying to be out in the spotlight as much, and now mm-hmm. it's really unapologetic. Yeah, and yeah, and in terms of that, in terms of the the people on the platforms, uh, there are also various extreme right wing Canadian ideologues whose names will be known to members of our audience and to you as well: uh, Stefan Molyneux, Faith Goldie, Ezra Levant. You know, the founder of the Metal um, Rebel Media Group, uh, who is best known for capitalizing on the Quebec mosque shooting by a crowdfunding campaign whilst blaming the attack on Islamic infighting. So Mm -hmm. that kind of person. Lauren Southern, uh, Maxime Bernier, who we've talked about in the demos to this podcast. Uh, John Carpe, a fellow who is the founder of the Canadian Center for Constitutional Freedoms fringe religious right legal organization that frequently re- represents anti-abortion groups. I saw one of his bumper stickers today. Yeah, he's such a... Anyways. We good. need a law.ca. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that that's not an exhaustive list, but these are the people who came just to the top of my head while I was preparing for the episode. And I was kind of astonished by how many Canadians I could think off of the top of my head, high-profile people who adhere to these... Now, this, these beliefs aren't common to all of them, but things like white genocide, things like white ethnostates, um, like severe extreme Islamophobia and stuff of this nature. Um, all of these people kind of represent, or in John Carpe's case, like the anti-abortion fringe religious right movement stuff. Um, this is now becoming more mainstream. And a lot of them are just completely masked off at this point, like Faith Goldie or, or Laura Southern, for mm-hmm. instance. But uh, when it comes to this long list, and I think you're right that it's worrying, I, I always like to think, um, and I think it's important to think and remember, about how some of this could be marketing. You always got to keep in mind that when this is surging in the way that it is, and it's so marketable, and people like Ben Shapiro are making a lot of money off of this movement. That's what disturbs me, though, is how how many people it resonates with. Well, exactly, right? It's like the grassroots is there, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But um, some of these people are capitalizing, cashing in. I think a lot of them believe in it to some degree, and they also want to cash in at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, but it's just like, I mean, Peterson never would have blown up, I don't think, if it hadn't been for the transgender issue. And I wouldn't lump him in with all the alt-right, alt-right people, but he obviously chose a marketable... I wouldn't lump him in on all issues because he's never... No, it's true. Um, uh, uh, ...explicitly had had racist... Uh, uh, he, he has had some very worrying statements on ethnicity and IQ 
and the what he calls like the uh, overrepresentation of Ashkenazi Jews in positions of power on the continent and stuff of this, which is like that is red meat for sort of white nationalist people. Because of course the white mm-hmm. genocide hypothesis, the debunked, you know, crackpot theory is that you know um, Jewish powers in the West are bringing about this demographic change and replacement of Caucasian people. Mm, totally. So Yeah, so there's there's elements of that there with him for sure, although I don't think he highlights them as much. I guess my point generally is that there's a feedback loop happening here where um, at the same time that you have these leaders kind of championing these ideas um, in their circles, you also have some grassroots who push people into mm-hmm. these into these positions where they will, like Peterson, will emphasize the trans issue in his base more because it happens to be more marketable. I'm sure a lot of these... Um, People are pushing an issue that they know is gonna is gonna get them some and, kind of base. And I'm kind of glad that you brought up Jordan Peterson because I have him in here. Like he was born in Edmonton and received his bachelor's degree from the University of Alberta. So we we probably have to <laughs> kind of wonder what what about the conditions of him being raised brought about some of his really quite curious and sort of pseudo philosophical leanings. Although um, to be fair to Peterson, his uh, academic background. And yeah, it's pretty solid, I guess. His yeah. reading, his reading lists that he's posted and his um, emphasis on literature and philosophy to me makes him, um, although I don't agree with him or, or have never read his books that he's written or watched his videos, uh, seeing his, what he's studied and what he's interested in alone makes me think that at least he has some kind of a foundation for this stuff and he does know the literature and, and, and the scholarship uh, and the philosophy that he talks about, which some of these guys like Shapiro don't even try to do. So I want to give him a little bit of, of mm. credit where it's due. Um, his emphasis on Dostoevsky, his emphasis on Nietzsche. His I don't think he really understands those writers very well. I would argue. and I don't At least wanna, he's read them. That's yeah, all I'm saying. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with I don't want to get bogged Peterson. down on Pearson because we have much more interesting things to talk about. But like, totally. anyways, like Canada, we have, a, we have a bit of a problem here. Um, and so the first article that I wanted to bring up comes out of the Calgary Herald by a reporter named Johnny Wakefield, and I just hit the camera, um, from Al-Qaeda to the soldiers of Odin, extremism finds fertile ground in Alberta. Mm-hmm. I think this is a really good place to start, because so, the article goes through not only Al-Qaeda and soldiers of Odin, Odin but left-wing extremist groups, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of extremism, political and religious, that Alberta seems to be a hotspot for. So, uh, yeah, so this is based on a nearly 100-page study entitled Extremism and Hate-Motivated Violence in Alberta. It comes from an organization called the Organization for the Prevention of Violence, and this was done with a $1.2 million grant from the federal government. Um, So it provides membership estimates for violent or potentially violent extremist groups. Um, The report relied on on reports from over 170 law enforcement members from the RCMP and every municipal police service in Alberta. It also consulted 120 community members, most affected, 50 service providers specializing in violence and at-risk youth, 21 formers, who are people who are formally associated with these organizations or their families. Um, And then, as usual, the threat comes from those who exist on the fringes of these groups, not necessarily these groups in their entirety. And that's pretty important to mention. Um, so I'm, I, re, I kind of reorganized how the article went through it in terms of what I viewed as being actually the most like, pertinent threats. And so one that they focus on is white supremacists. Yeah. Um, so Alberta has a particularly long history of white supremacism. 
And an example is, and we'll get into this later, the Ku Klux Klan had 7,000 to 8,000 members between 50 chapters by 1930s. Um, but by the end of the decade, their numbers had diminished past that point. Um, these white supremacist movements wouldn't really reorganize until the late 1980s. And the next surge in extremism related to the ideology came between 2008 and 2012 with an uptick of violent incidents. Um, so while the targeted acts of terror came from these groups, the report mentions, oh, sorry, uh, while no targeted acts of terror have come from these groups as of now, the report mentions they are at a high risk to do so. And these include blood and honor, Combat 18, the Christian identity movement. Um, but their numbers are estimated to be quite small. Uh, Blood and Honor, for example, peaked at about 70 members in 2016, 2017. So the report does go to pains to say, like, there haven't been any terrorist attacks done by these groups yet, but that, you know, they are a prominent fixture in the province um, and that they are at risk to perform these acts under the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. They've probably been, I would argue they've they've probably had the air let out of them a little bit with the recent UCP election because of course like, oh, our guys are in uh, as they see it. So we probably won't see anything in the near future, but they're here and there's a history of it in this province. So, um, uh, so, so whether or not they actually are their guys or just perceive it that way is up in the air. I'm sure there's some dog whistles that the party could have you know, played into for that, but uh, it's not totally fair to lump them in in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but I can certainly see them as sharing some sympathies with the UCP, so. Right, and so then another group that is investigated in the report is Patriot and Militia Groups. Uh, is so that like Soldiers of Old Odin? Um, yes, I believe so. Um, so the thing is, is that, so in the Albertan context, uh, these are de facto white supremacist groups that have organized themselves in a militaristic-like fashion, including da disaster preparation and firearms training. Um, the report details that these groups primarily target immigrant minorities, especially those with predominantly mu Muslim membership with their rhetoric. Uh, but they stress that there's, yeah, that they stress that, that there's no evidence at this time that these groups are partaking in violence towards any group, but that their membership has swelled since a number of stories detailing their activities came forward in 2017, 2018. So that's your, you know, that's your soldiers of Odin. That's the clan. That's the true North Patriots. Um, I disagree with lumping them differently as white supremacists because they pretty distinctly are? Yeah, I don't know why they did white supremacists in one group and like yeah. military groups in another. I guess just the military difference because they do have those regimented mm -hmm. like structures. And, and the and the, the firearms article, training and stuff. And the article in the report does mention that the Yellow Vest movement is implicated as a potential feeder for these groups. Right, which is interesting to say the least. The yeah. Yellow well, Yellow Vest movement is such an amor <laughs> amorphous thing. It, it it's so uh, nebulous because it's so different everywhere that it appears. Yeah, although I think the thing it has in common is populism. Sort of populism and, and violent rhetoric, I would say. Direct po action. Direct action yeah. kind of thing. So, I mean, like you don't get much more direct than like hang the prime minister kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um so then after that is Al-Qaeda and its affiliates and splinter groups. Um, and this is kind of interesting, though. From the 1990s to the mid-2000s, low-level fundraising and money laundering occurred within Alberta, uh, supporting groups in Bosnia, the Middle East, and Northern Africa. Since 2012, 30 to 40 people around from Alberta have traveled overseas to fight for foreign groups, most of them for the Islamic State of Syria and Iraq. Um, 
while these numbers are disproportionately high relative to other provinces, this is only a blip in the context of the general population, even if you're only counting those who are, you know, Muslim, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. Yeah, tiny group, right? And I found this one to be interesting, that a disproportionate number from Alberta relative to other provinces were moving. And I was kind of wondering what might be... What what is it about Alberta relative to other Canadian provinces, especially those with like sort of landed minority groups or Im- immigrant groups from parts of the Middle East and Northern Africa? What is it about the special blend of Alberta that so it's like, well, you know, it would be better to go fight and die for ISIS than it would be to live in Edmonton, mm-hmm, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's some kind of culture going on here that's making us exceed in all the worst places. Um, There's obviously a culture that's increasing the amount of of right-wing nativist groups and at the same time um, having Islamic extremism and left-wing extremism. Mm. You've got all these different extremist uh, groups kind of popping up. So what is that culture? And you know what? I actually think that they're related to one another. So I think as we get into those details, you're going to see that... um, the way that people who join one racial religious extremist group feel about the other is mm-hmm. the way that, that the other feels about them. And I think mm-hmm. there's, there's a strong culture of alienation and disconnection, and, and we're, we're seeing the, the sad results of what happens when people you know, lose connection with, with, with other communities. Right, and, and especially when it's very hard to form those connections within a community. And I think that, for instance, in mm. the Edmonton context, for instance, the uh, the Punjabi League is a really good example of a, a, a pretty um, visible and active immigrant community or immigrant-based community in Edmonton. Um, and they do, like, they have lots of festivals and celebrations and they do lots of community service and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think that groups like that largely exist because they have issues with integrating with the community at large. And I think mm-hmm. this I think this has mostly to do with sort of just like the atomization of the West, that everybody lives between their house and the fence in their backyard, that the only time that you're seeing people is at your place of work that you had you usually had to drive to get to. And I, I think that um, while Edmonton, not Edmonton, while Alberta does have an issue with these, you know, these specific flavors of bigotry, for sure. I think that it also just has to do with the general atomization that we see pretty much everywhere. Definitely. I've, I've heard that atomization referred to as enclaves before. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, ethnic enclaves, um, you know, even a white enclave, a Muslim enclave, and then, you know, let's say a... Uh, Punjabi immigrant enclave and they don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And this to me, I think you're really hitting on it. Well, why do we have um, extremism from these white nationalists and from Islam, uh, you know, this tiny minority of the, of the Islamic population here? Well, there are enclaves that exist that don't talk to each other, that have never spoken to each other and are not planning on it. And um, that kind of lack of integration seems to be a big part of why this mm-hmm. exists. I mean, that's why I think uh, young people, it's very promising to see, especially in universities and things, them integrating between communities and beyond their communities and actually talking to people. You know, it, maybe it's in your field, um, someone in your field, like for me, someone who, who studies politics, and um, you meet, you know, a Mormon and a Muslim and uh, someone from Pakistan and... Um, you know, all, all these different immigrant communities. Hopefully you meet a Shia and a Sunni. <laughs> and, and you can talk to all these different people and really break down those barriers and start talking about, you know, what do mm-hmm. you share in common in terms of values? And honestly, where do you differ? Because that's mm-hmm. okay too. But when you start meeting these people beyond communities and you see young people kind of reaching out in that way, I think there's common ground to be had. And this mm-hmm. is something I want to focus on is like, 
the solution. Like, where can we find this common ground? Because right. Um, right now, obviously, this a level of hate means we don't have any common ground being sought at this point. Right. And so um, then just to finish up with what the article was talking about. So they, there's also a section on left wing extremism, virtually non-existent. The couple of incidents that were reported, there's a slight increase in response to the rise of far right extremism. So these are your anti-fascist types. I would say kind of in the data looks the same with the Islamic extremists where there's very, very, very few of them. We just happen to have more of it than other provinces. Yeah. Although it, the report doesn't seem to mention that we have disproportionately more. Although, like for left-wing extremism, it doesn't really seem to be... I think it depends on when you get the data, because if you look... I mean, this one, yeah, it doesn't point to it. But as you said, when it comes to counter-protests, mm -hmm. you're going to be seeing more and more yeah, of that. Yeah, probably. And some of the other articles we'll be looking at has indicated that the counter-protests are building, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what I expect to see. Yeah. And the other thing about the... the because, sorry, just really oh, quick, it's not just ethnic enclaves. It's not just ethnic groups being atomized. It's also the left and the right. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets really weird is that the other thing I like to do in, in my studies, and I study politics, and my friends do too, is I make friends with conservatives. And, and I don't consider myself very conservative in the traditional sense. But it's good to have those friends, even card-holding UCP members. Um, break down those atomized enclaves, I think, even when it comes to your left and, and right wing. Because I, as a white man, and my friend who voted UCP as a white man, are very, very different people. And we don't mm -hmm. want to also create another political enclave on top of the, all these racial enclaves as well. Yeah, and um, and on that note, like, um, because while the report focused primarily on extremist groups and the violence most likely to commit violence, I mean, the anti-abortion movement in the province is very strong. They, ha they certainly had a hand um, with UCP campaigning and involvement for sure. Mm -hmm. Of course, you see uh, specters raising their heads like John Carpe is a good example. And I think that that might be another one of these enclaves. Um, and for instance, I know for myself, and, and maybe it's just because I, I enjoy a little bit of sport, maybe because I enjoy like sort of studying the, the other people. Uh, whenever the pro-life chapter on this campus comes about, I like to go and chat with them and see what they're on about and uh, have the same conversation that I've had with them, you know, 25 other previous times because they never changed their talking points. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of interesting because you can kind of see how that movement has evolved. And I'm really curious why it wasn't actually included in the report because they seem to strike me as amongst like the most insidious of them all. Yeah, it could be because um, they, the, the pro-life movements, although they are Christian right movements, which mm -hmm. a lot of like white nationalist movements tend to be Christian right or at least right, um, I don't think they like to associate themselves with uh, racial uh, scapegoating and things because they know it's going to hurt their mm -hmm. movement. So they kind of have in one pocket over here, they got their pro-life advocacy. In another pocket over mm -hmm. here, they have their kind of other right-wing advocacy. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're very sensitive to how their marketing looks, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think that maybe they're not included because they're not technically considered like a, they're not a hate group, although they are an mm -hmm. extremist group to mm -hmm. some degree. So then, and also to be fair, there's varying levels of of, of uh, abortion law proponent um, extremism. Some mm -hmm. of these people are more extreme than others, right? Um, of and course, some of them are fairly moderate. So. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll have to come back to this issue on next yeah, episode, just definitely. because it's, it's such a big it's, issue. It's such a big issue, and it and it stands to become a particularly important one in the Albertan context. Um, so then uh, just back to sort of like white supremacist movements and the history thereof, 
Uh, so there's another article, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just taking some excerpts just to sort of illustrate how we got here. Uh, so this comes from CBC News, and it's entitled, A Dark Chapter, Should Edmonton's KKK History Be Acknowledged? by Wallace Snowden. And um, so I'll just read the excerpts that I have here. So it says, On what is now in an unremarkable parking lot in downtown Edmonton, there once stood a key source of propaganda for Alberta's Ku Klux Klan. In the 1930s, the long-since-demolished building housed the Liberator, the Klan-controlled newspaper that published hateful vitriol and helped inflame xenophobia during the depths of Depression-era Alberta. The KKK were once a powerful force in Edmonton under the leadership of John James Maloney, a seminarian who worked to revive the movement in Saskatchewan. Seeking more political control, Maloney moved to Edmonton in 1930, restored the Alberta KKK, and declared himself the Imperial Wizard. Which I I love their titles, like the wizards and the dragoons and all this kind of stuff. (laughs) Isn't one of them Grand Dragon? Yeah, it's like the Grand Grand Dragon, yeah, in the United States. Like the head guy, the guy who wears the red outfit kind of thing. Oh, no. Uh, The David Duke or whatever his name was kind of thing. I I love them. It's like like if... um, it's like if a bunch of six-year-olds made a club. It, it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like if some people, it, it's like if um, <laughs> a collection of people who grew up on Dungeons and Dragons decided to start their own kind of like fringe, hate you know, group. like hate group kind yeah. of thing. It's like, so what should we call the top guy? Well, you know, wizards are really powerful. So I think that it should be, the top position should be the Imperial Wizard. Well, just they to, wear. Just to demonstrate the, the, the power <laughs> over space and time. They wear those wizard robes, too. So they I do. Mean, They're it's ghosts. all a big act. Ooh, yeah. Spooky. Yeah. So anyways, um, <laughs> he, he began canvassing the countryside to establish new chapters and collect membership fees and soon gained powerful allies with a message that was not only hostile towards immigrants and people of color, but also viciously anti-Catholic. You were talking about these enclaves of groups and how it's not mm-hmm. just ethnic. You see how far it goes. It can go down religious lines. It can go down political. Like, it's quite amazing how, like, this is an issue that's made worse since the internet became a thing, but it's always existed in some part, right? Absolutely. Like, kind of like the, you know, the Jews poison the well again, or like the, the blood libel kind of thing. It's like it's our in-group versus our out-group, and our in-group is good pretty much by definition yep. because we do good things for our group, and then the people who are outside of that group are to be met with suspicion, this included Catholics, which actually that's part of the reason why we have a Catholic and Protestant school system in the province, because Catholics were worried about being discriminated against by the Protestants. Mm-hmm. So, and, and <laughs> yeah, and, and not that we should have separated schools, but that's why. Yeah, exactly. As I understand it, and I think the the influence of the internet on these enclaves becomes even more troublesome. I had a really excellent philosophy professor one time who I'll never forget said Twitter is, is potentially one of the worst. Um, uh, kind of propagandistic influences on people when they consume news because you can, he, as he described, it's a self-curated news feed. Yeah, you're curating true. every single aspect of it. And if you're aware and you're intelligent enough and you're educated enough, there's a chance you can overcome that. Yeah. But um, for a lot of people who are using tw- Twitter and now increasingly Facebook, you can curate your own uh, information and, mm-hmm. and build your own bubble build your own enclave. Pretty much. And yeah. so, th- th- are you ready for the real kicker to this? So, the KKK hosted lavish dinners and public gatherings, attended by hundreds. In 1931, the group celebrated Daniel Knott's mayoral victory in Edmonton by lighting a fiery cross on Connors Hill. 
On more than one occasion during Knott's term, they requested permission to use the Edmonton Exhibition Grounds, which is now Northlands, for a picnic and cross-burning. Both times Knott approved their request, as evidenced by his official correspondence detailing the logistics of burning a cross, including that the KKK would pay for fire marshals and cleanup of the grounds. So, like, <laughs> we had people burning crosses for politicians that they supported in this province. And sorry, was this during the 80s resurgence? 30s. 30s. This, this is the original? This, this is original, yeah. 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 Okay. So you might be able to argue, like, oh, that was far enough back in time that this doesn't really have any impact on the present and all this kind of stuff. And you might be right in saying that, but I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, these were groups that came about that really reinforced themselves during the Depression era and the run-up to it. Um, And so you can see, again, this sort of protectionist nativist thought coming part and parcel with economic downturn. Mm -hmm. Not to say that that's the only reason for why these groups pop back up, but I think that part of their resurgence these days, especially on the North American continent, uh, and even in parts of Europe, is probably also tied to economic um, uh, downturns and catastrophes in which they need someone to blame. So whether it's, you know, the the Jewish question, as they put it, whether it's Muslim immigrants from the Middle East, they're going to find their scapegoat because the thing that they cannot admit that, you know, that other Caucasian people, the job creators, were the ones who did this to them. Mm -hmm, Definitely, yeah. And I think what's important here and and what... what really needs to be emphasized is how these pieces then come together. So so why do we have um, the economic downturn, uh, the um, uh, enclaves and the hate all coming together to form this issue? Mm-hmm. And, and what exactly are the pieces of this that come together? Because I think you're right. The economic downturn, I would describe it as a catalyst mm-hmm. where it was already kind of happening and then the downturn catalyzed it and, and, and made it, you know, come to the forefront a bit more, made it happen a bit faster. But... There's so many moving pieces here that you can't emphasize one over the rest. And I clearly you understand that that the economic downturn, as you said, is one factor. Mm-hmm. But all these pieces are coming together in a certain way that's creating a, a, a real environment for hate. And um, I think the starting place is uh, alienation, separation, mm-hmm. enclaves. And then the economic downturn starts to become kind of like a catalyst later on. I see right. it as tectonic plates pushing against each other, building that pressure, then you have something that slips and the whole thing mm-hmm. starts to rupture. So you have a um, an article uh, by Bridget Sterling in Edmonton. Would you like to, do you have any specific excerpts you want to go from that document or anything you want to comment on it? Maybe go over the title and stuff like this. Uh, yeah, it's actually, so Bridget Sterling is, is the prime uh, interviewee. It's actually written by Omar Mosla. Okay. And um, just generally going over the strange rise recently in public demonstrations from white nationalist groups and then kind of the retaliation from left-wing uh, uh, groups who are counter-protesting them and this whole kind of like, as they describe it, uh, skirmishes that are going on between protesters mm-hmm. and counter-protesters. And um, surprising to me because uh, neither of us currently live in the downtown part of Edmonton. We don't see this on a, on a daily basis. I'm going to be moving there by the end of the week, so that should be interesting. Oh, that soon? Yeah, that oh. soon, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm planning on it eventually, but um, I, without seeing it on a daily basis, you don't even realize this is happening. But when you read these articles, we, we have now in Churchill Square um, mm. protesters going out who are affiliated with Soldiers of Olden or other uh, white nationalist groups and, and spewing their... The Klan is the other big one, from mm-hmm. my understanding. And they're spewing... They have, like, jackets with, like, infidel written in Arabic on their 
like uh, as patches kind of thing, like these kind of people. Yeah, and they uh, they're spewing their their vitriol and they're you know what I always like to call a scapegoating mm-hmm. of you know blaming their problems on on these minority groups and they're doing it in public now. So you have these these demonstrators going out, kind of like the soapbox guy on Jasper Ave who talks about the Bible, um, although you know much less innocuous than him. Um, going out and 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 you know getting up on a soapbox and just just starting to spread these messages and it's something that I maybe naively wouldn't have really expected in Edmonton. I mean, what what kind of blows my mind a little bit is how heavily we went to the NDP and how left wing Edmonton's mm-hmm. always been. Like you know, liberal seats in every federal election are found in Edmonton, um, but then we have this stuff going on. So, I mean, is it a loud minority or um, like, is, is there quite a bit of, of that kind of as an undercurrent? It's, it's very interesting and disheartening. Um, I would argue the biggest part of it too, because we just had the, um, whatever the, the March for life rally on the legislature grounds. And we'll be talking about that in the next episode. Cause that was a big deal because um, publicly funded schools in the city shipped busloads of kids there to protest it predominantly from like the Catholic schools, for instance. So that, that was a really interesting turn. But the reason I think why they choose Edmonton rather than Calgary is because Calgary has always been synonymous with like conservative economic and philosophical thought and business. It was like Edmonton wasn't the oil capital of the province. Calgary was, right? Um, and I would argue still is to some degree. Still is to some degree. And I think that bringing it into Edmonton is twofold. One, because it is the seat of power in the province, because that is where the legislature is. Uh, it is the capital city in, you know, officially. I think that's a big part of it. I think another big part of it is, is that, yeah, they do want to bring it to the heart of like, you know, like we saw in the last um, the last election, like it's a sea of blue around a tiny little like spot of orange, which is Edmonton, right? Mm-hmm. Right now in the legislature. And I think that, and like a couple like blotches in Calgary, as it were. Um, But I think that's the main reason. I think the main reason has to do with both bringing into the backyard of the people who you are against, which honestly is just kind of like give credit where credit is due. That's good politics. But two, because it is also the seat of power. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, at the same time that I'm grateful that we do have a a popular support Mm -hmm. of more socially progressive issues. And you can see it everywhere when it comes to whether it's the Pride Parade or whether it's just people you see walking down the street. Um, Is there anything specific that um, Miss Sterling brings up that might be worth expanding upon? Because I remember reading her Twitter uh, thread when this was all happening. She was commenting like someone was like, you know, threatening to like murder her or assault her or other people like her and she had to go to the police about it so bridget sterling works for hate free yeg um so she's she's the co-founder of hate free yeg um for those who aren't from edmonton although i'm sure you should be from Alberta if you're listening to this podcast yeg is their airport code so it's hate free edmonton and um uh, bridget sterling has has um reported a, a number of of threats and harassment um, issues around her, you know, to be fair, not really violent threats, but things about, you know, getting her fired or, um, you know, counter protests showing up, you know, far right white mm-hmm. nationalists. But essentially um, what Hate for Yega has been noticing is that now every weekend or two, they, they have a, a congregation of, of speakers speaking in favor of, of nativist movements. And then the, these counter protesters who show up to to um, uh, detract from them 
Mm-hmm. And um, it's extremely short article, so uh, there's really nothing to, to dive into there. That's fair. So then uh, that means we can go, um, so kind of the last uh, piece of, uh, uh, the last article that we I wanted to go over today comes out of the Globe and Mail. And it, it, it's a gargantuan one, so we're only going to touch on specific excerpts. Um, but it's entitled, Canada's New Far Right, A Trove of Private Chatroom Messages Reveals an Extremist Subculture. And this is by Shannon Karanko and John Milton out of the Globe and Mail. Um, so we're reading excerpts for this one. Uh, these messages were, there were messages that were leaked by Montreal-based self-described anti-fascists that infiltrated a Discord channel uh, called Canadian Superflares. Of course, Discord being the uh, voice and text communication application that's largely used by gamers. It's kind of like WhatsApp or something. Sort of, yeah. But I mean, for gaming. Like, I, I, I use Discord for gaming, personally. Yeah. Um, but it's, like, it, it's like a Ventrilo, but it's the new version. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a free version of, of Vent, pretty much. Um, so, anyway, so I'll, I'll read this excerpt here. So, they come from all walks of life. Tradesmen, soldiers, a student teacher, a financial analyst, an aspiring lawyer, among others. And they are in every province, in communities large and small. They gather on the internet to strategize and seek pathways into mainstream politics. They are anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, Islamophobic, sexist, and racist. They are young and radicalized. They are the new far right in Canada. The Globe and Mail has obtained a trove of 150,000 messages posted between February 2017 and early 2018 that reveal the private communications of a loosely aligned node of Canadian right-wing extremists. The record of their continuing conversation reveals a movement energized by the rise of white ethno-nationalism in the United States and aims to upend a decades-old multicultural consensus in this country. The discussions reviewed by the Globe and Mail originally took place on a text and voice application called Discord, an app meant for gamers that is also popular with the far right. The group called itself the Canadian Superplayers, apparently disguised them apparently to disguise themselves as video gamers. Hmm. White nationalism has become a growing concern around the world, especially in its extreme and violent forms. At the time of writing, last month's terrifying attack on mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, in which 50 people were shot to death and 50 more injured, and which were live-streamed by the alleged killer on Facebook, ignited a worldwide surge of anxiety about the simmering threat of white nationalist terrorism. David Vignult, the Vignult, the director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, said earlier this month that his agency is increasingly preoccupied by the threat of right-wing extremists. His reports his remarks come shortly after Facebook banned a number of people including former Toronto mayor candidate and white replacement theorist Faith Goldie and Canadian white nationalist campaigner Kevin Goudreau for promoting the organized hate other <laughs> the organized hate uh, promoting organized hate other internet giants were also feeling pressure to crack down hmm. The threat of white nationalism and the failure to denounce it has become an increasingly pressing political issue. Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer has been criticized for attending the same United We Roll rally as Miss Goldie, and for which is a yellow vest movement offshoot, by the way, and for failing to specifically mention in his initial statement that the Christchurch attack targeted Muslims. Mr. Scheer has called the criticism baseless and said that he condemns all hateful ideologies, but the criticism continues. Earlier this year, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau accused Mr. Scheer of not doing enough to condemn racism and extremism, a signal that the Liberals may seek to make this a ballot box issue in the upcoming election. Who gives a shit? Um, so interesting. Like, they do mention, like, you know, this is being brought about, imported, essentially, from the same type of movements in the United States. Mm-hmm. They found this Discord server where people across the co- co- country 
were talking about it, the majority of which were Ontario and British Columbia, but Alberta coming in a close third. Um, and these were only from the numbers of people who referred to where they came from that they could identify came from somewhere else, but it's across the prov- or across the country pretty mm-hmm. much. And again, you see the enclave issue and the internet enclave issue mm-hmm. coming to the fore here. Mm-hmm. And so probably the most unsettling is that, so there, there was a recent issue that the Royal Canadian Legion, which is kind of like a retirement club for veterans of the Canadian forces, there was a group within them that was identified as being organized along white nationalist lines and they were subjectively ejected from the group. Well, they self-identified as soldiers of Odin, I believe. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, like explicitly soldiers of Odin, and they were ejected. So that is relevant for this next story where they talk about an individual from the Canadian Armed Forces who went by the online handle Rusty. Uh, He was seen by other members, apparently, as a leader. he was in that uh, super players group on Discord? Yes, he was. Um, And his advice on training weapons and tactics were sought after. So uh, Rusty told his friends in the Canadian Super Players Club a group chat that he had joined the forces in 2007 and trained as a field troop engineer. At the time of his 2017 postings, he said that he and his wife were living in Nova Scotia and gearing up for the arrival of triplets. He was planning to leave the army and start a new life, raising his children in an ethnically pure area in his family home in British Columbia. Rusty described his time in the forces with fondness, but with an evident disgust as to what the army in his eyes had become. We spent more time taking classes about how not to offend special snowflakes than we spend time training, shooting, in the field, or on deployment. Uh, Which... I heard somebody say that recently from the armed forces. Uh, Oh, man. I used to work in people's houses, and there was this guy who said he quit the military because of of what Trudeau did to it, because it's got sensitivity training and things. They took away the don't ask, do tell, so now when somebody's sucking my dick, they can tell me that they're gay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was... He literally had... uh, He literally had an accent and two big custom pickup trucks in in the front, and like... uh, you know, um, worked on muscle car in the garage. Yep. Like he's the type, right? He's he's a welder or something. Yeah, and, fair. And 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 not. I mean, not to not to paint welders with a with a broad brush, but you know, the the, the type of 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 wealthy right wing, very inward looking her, hermit type person who mm-hmm. harbors these beliefs. I've actually heard about that. That's interesting that it crops up. He encouraged group members to join the reserves in order to benefit from training in firearms and strategy. Several members of the group posted messages indicating they had either done so or were considering it. A number of current and former Forces members have been tied to the far right in recent years. In 2017, Forces members, who also belong to the anti-feminist all-male group Proud Boys... Oh, by the way, also, I th- Gavin McGuinness is Canadian as well, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he is. So the guy yep. who started the Proud Boys, um, I believe he's associated. Is he associated he, with InfoWars now or something? He worked on Rebel Media. For Rebel Media, that's the one, yeah. yeah. Uh, so another Canadian extreme far-right ideologue. Uh, disrupted an indigenous... Hel- that guy's um, a... F- idiot yeah too isn't yeah. he like, well, he was like, also a co-founder of vice he seems like yes yes i remember that back when he used to be not quite as crazy um, apparently he used to not have the same right word leadings he does now but when you hear him talk he's just a showman he's a used car salesman I pretty much he's a snake oil salesman i mean he's just he's just offloading an ideology that happens to be popular yeah. in this in this moment and yeah he doesn't have a leg to stand on like he's this kind of guy who there are audio recordings of him saying like in order to get your fourth degree in proud boys you have to commit an act of violence uh, I started this gang called the Proud Boys, and the Proud uh, Boys. The Proud Boys. What is the, what's Proud Boys about? We have chapters all over the world. 
We meet, <laughs> we meet started, once a month. Chapters? We uh, we uh, get drunk and just, it's like the Elks Lodge. Okay. Boy, second degree, we beat the shit out of you until you can name five breakfast cereals and you have to give up <laughs> masturbating. And then third degree, you still have to give up masturbating, but you have to get a tattoo. And then fourth degree, you get arrested or in a serious violent fight for the really? cause. Really? Yes. You get arrested in a serious violent fight, so you're promoting or it's violence? Or some sort of major altercation. You shouldn't that, you should erase that part. Well, we don't. We don't encourage it, but if you're defending, like at the at the Berkeley thing with Milo, we just the, my guys just fourteen of them just walked into a mob of two hundred people just to get their stripes. And said, "I thought you guys were tough." No, they were doing it just for fun. And these people outside of pepper spray and clubs, they can't fight. Like at the NYU thing, my guys were beating them up, and he goes, "This one guy we call Friar Tuck because he's just a monster." He goes, "I started feeling batting it. I started feeling bad after a while." Because I was just, I could tell these kids had never been in a fight. And I was just mowing through them. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and like f suffer for the, for the cause kind of thing. And he turns around and says, oh no, our group isn't a violent extremist group. That is all just propaganda. That's <laughs> fake news kind of thing. It's just like we have recordings of you that you posted, that you said this. And yeah, you have he's... people in your group that can confirm it. But anyways, moving forward with this. Um, yeah, so in 2017, forces members who belong to the anti-feminist all-male group Proud Boys disrupted an indigenous-led protest in Halifax. Among the founders of La Mute, the largest far-right group in Quebec, are military veterans. In media interviews, I can't believe I forgot about La Mute. Um, the longest, yeah, uh, in media interviews, Chief of Defense Staff General Jonathan Vance has admitted that extremism is present in the forces and said he is determined to stamp it out. The perils of sending racist members of the forces into the field is starkly driven home by the scandal that led to the dismantling of the Canadian Airborne, Airborne Regiment following the racist killing of a Somali man by Canadian soldiers during Canada's deployment to Somalia in the 1990s. Rusty described his own foreign deployment in a way that suggests he was part of the disaster response in Nepal following the earthquakes there in 2015. He described the locals as, pardon me everybody, as shitskins and said that he used the clothes of the dead as toilet paper. He also described an incident in Canada in which a Jewish military colleague complained that Rusty and other soldiers were being anti-Semitic. Rusty said he responded by raging several handguns in the shape of a swastika on the Jewish soldier's desk. And just to be clear, we don't, we cannot prove whether this man was actually a member of the forces. Of course, he could be acting. He could be acting, but all we can confirm is that people who are part of these groups do fetishize the, the military, military for, you know, power and weaponry and, and tactics and things of this nature. And that we do have other documented issues of people like Rusty in the public eye, essentially, whether oh. it's La Mute oh, in, sure. in, in Quebec or whether it's what happened in Halifax. Oh, sure. And then what about uh, the, the thing that um, uh, who, who's the, the whistleblower, uh, Chelsea Manning? Mm -hmm. the, the issue that, that she blew the whistle on was, was exactly this kind of thing. It was uh, dehumanizing a, civilized, uh, a, a civilian population enough that you can kill them because, much, yeah. because of racism and, and yeah. you know, seeing them as subhuman. She, she revealed the wiretaps that demonstrated how military intelligence was discussing how they were going to go about killing people who they knew were not like military insurgents and mm -hmm. had no role in it, right? Mm -hmm. So pretty much the same thing. Um, moving on, uh, woman could also be his target. While discussing his relationship with his wife, Rusty declared that women should have a say only in what's served for dinner and what's planted in the garden. He also described how he and fellow soldiers punished a female colleague for having the temerity to join the forces. We eventually started putting tons of pure salt in her boots, rotted the skin off her feet. She probably became unable to walk and had to be carried everywhere. 
Whether these incidents occurred or not, and whether this behavior was ever discovered by military authorities is, in the absence of a surname, difficult to verify using official records. The Globe spoke to several military members in Nova Scotia and was unable to corroborate the account. Hmm. So the thing about it is, is that it has less to do with whether this man was a part of the forces. Because either he was in the forces and he did these terrible things, or he wishes he was in the forces so that he could do these terrible things. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, these people exist potentially by the hundreds, if not thousands, across the country. That's the part... with with everything we've gone over today, there's obviously a lot more of them than you'd maybe expect or want want to believe. Oh, virtually guaranteed. Um, and so just just to hold off is that like others in the chat room, Rusty yearned for a Canadian white ethno state. He and the others talked eagerly about Rahawa or the racial holy war, the day when whites would rise up and take back what was, in their view, rightfully theirs from non-whites and feminists in Canada. When members asked which guns to buy in preparation, Rusty, who described owning seven firearms of his own, pointed them to a sturdy, reliable weapons that could be used for hunting as well as defense. It was the deer hunters, he said, who would survive the societal collapse. So again, nativist, internal facing, the making of enclaves, wanting to do like, I guess, sufficiency hunting or or whatever the term for that is kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, I know the word you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, you know, sustenance hunting. Yeah, exactly, Yeah. yeah. So I think that the thing about it is that it's, like, it is pervasive in a way. You know what, though? And it's not just weird, like, basement, basement dwelling spurglorgs anymore. No, like it's, no, it's becoming... Uh, I hesitate not the to 4chan type. I hesitate to say mainstream. Now, what is a 4chan? It's, <laughs> it's, becoming, <laughs> it's becoming mainstream among some groups. Mm-hmm. And what disturbs me, too, is how many young people are being brought into it. Like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say mainstream, but it's becoming less underground than it has been before. And like I said before, it's a lot less bashful than it used to be. Um, but this, this most recent excerpt that you read from... From uh, uh, Rusty there, uh, his 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 uh, little moniker. Um, he's describing a set of cultural values, of beliefs about what he values, and what he sees his society should value, and the kind of things that they need to exalt as their values in order to be a community. And I think this is what a lot of these white nationalist types will talk about. And this is actually, if you ask Islamic extremists, like in the fantastic Vice documentary back when mm-hmm. they were cool and they embedded themselves with ISIS and they talked to them, they say the same thing. So they want a community set around a group of values that they can exalt, that they can um, practice, and that they can enforce and not let other people into if they don't practice those values. Now that... Seems, you know, somewhat to, to some degree what countries do. People do that, and that's okay if you do it in the right way. But what's so stupid to me about these groups and what really blows my mind, you know, beyond comprehension is, and I kind of see, I guess if I work hard enough, I can see where they come to this conclusion. But why the hell do they think that every white person has the same values as them? Because this is where it gets to the point, I don't think that these immigrant groups are the ones who destroyed our culture. I think the culture was destroyed before they got here. And, and, and furthermore, furthermore, who were the original immigrants on this continent? Because well, it wasn't a bunch of Caucasian people walking around here 500 odd years ago. Right. Well, about was, 500 years ago is when it started. But, it was us. Yeah. We're the original immigrants. Mm-hmm. So I think what comes to the we, fore here, we, When we talk about the Great Replacement... Caucasian people, European people literally did that to this continent. Mm. So, like, what the hell are they talking about? They're talking, and this is the thing that gets me. They're talking about a fantastical past that didn't exist. They are talking about these, 
you know, principles and these values, which are apparently they're apparently in, white. They're in. They're, they're white. They're European. They're apparently in, in, inviolable unless you need to violate them for the cause, right? And the thing is, is like, yeah, they make this appeal to Western culture, this this Western hegemony. When like, you know, the Greeks didn't wouldn't even fit within that definition because yeah. they're actually the, the 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 Greeks of antiquity. You know, the the, the Plato and the Aristotle, Socrates, and and, the, and that stable of thinkers actually were descended from people from now modern-day Turkey. So they would not have been in any way like Caucasian or Western in that we would think of it. Yeah. The Islamic world was hugely important for the stabilization and preservation of knowledge from Europe before the Christian Dark Ages. So, so huge amounts of that intellectual tradition were preserved in, for instance, the Baghdad House of Wisdom. And not only that, during the Islamic Golden Age, as it was called, there was prosperity and trading in the Middle East. They developed new forms of mathematics and science while Europe was busy, busy tearing itself apart for feudal lords. Basically, not to say that the Islamic Golden Age was all, you know, sunshine and roses forever. No, there was still you know, warfare and there was conquering to an extent. But if that is your definition of a Western values, you know, this the stable... Um, uh, society with an acknowledgement of your virtues and your philosophy and that which makes things work. Well, then what about ancient China, which was a civilization well mm. before Europe even existed? Definitely. What the hell are these people on about? Yeah, I mean, China... It's ahistorical. It's a history that never existed. When you look at Confucianism as well, Confucianism is in a large part what white nationalists are trying to achieve, which was achieved by... Chinese nationalists, right? Like this, this is something that like, this is what, what confuses me about it is to paint with such a broad brush that like, and you say Western values, that you want a society of Western values or you want a society of white values is not actually to describe the values that you're, you're trying to exalt. And that's what throws me off about these groups is that there's, there's a certain, um, uh, you know, argument that maybe society should conform to certain values, should have some kind of moral um, sense. I mean, you hear that when we say, oh, Canada shouldn't trade with Saudi Arabia, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, sure, maybe we shouldn't because they they are so aggressive towards their minority groups, are so aggressive towards their women and these kind of things. But, like, to assume that every value that you have is shared with everyone that shares your skin color is extremely naive and very silly. Um, and what they're and, doing. And, and, and that's why I wanted to get to the point that I don't think it was immigrants who did this to us because a lot of immigrants have a lot in common with us. And we were immigrants at one time. Like we have things that overlap with them. Um, if you look at the Indian uh, 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 minority, they, they, they have so much in common, especially because we were both colonial states, mm -hmm. India and Canada with us, that it's not even funny how much they have in common with us. The problem, I think, is that this cultural deterioration of the West happened long before immigration mm -hmm. w was a prominent thing. I mean, this is this is an issue. The cultural decay might be a real thing, but it might have nothing to do with racial minorities and immigrants. Right. It might have a lot more to do, I would argue, with emphasis on free markets. I think neoliberalism has a mm -hmm. big part to play on this. I think... Um, I think the degradation of our typographic means of communication with one another and how that fell away to this extreme entertainment industry whereby we are constantly distracted and are unable yeah. to form coherent thoughts or to 
determine what's true anymore. That's what I was gonna say is that it's also a part of it. I think the economic downturn is evidence that while we're distracted, we can stomach this. You know, mm. while we're distracted economically, if we're if we're doing well, if we've got the entertainment industry, we can distract us. But as soon as that falls away and we start to realize that our culture has been decaying, well, we start pointing fingers. We yeah. start saying, Oh, these are the scapegoats, these are the ones responsible. Yeah. It's like and, yeah, the twenty five thousand Syrian refugees who came in, they are responsible <laughs> for the downfall of Canadian history, not the Caucasian people that raped and bled the earth for all of its natural resources, that cut down all of the trees for toilet paper, that paved all of all of the boreal forests for strip malls and cabelas and Canadian tires, and then couldn't yeah. even figure out a way to collect money from their own natural resources and let other Caucasian people from the United States steal it all pretty much. Yeah, that's definitely the fault of Syrian refugees. Yeah, and... Uh, this is, to me, this is a like the the kernel. This, yeah. This is the core. Mm. Like this hmm. is where a lot of it comes to. Yeah. Where, no kidding. Where twenty five thousand? Like really? <laughs> After how many years this has been going on, and they think it's it's them who are doing it? Like this to me is the issue: is that they're they're misdiagnosing a problem that exists to some degree. There's something going on. A lot of people can sense it, but the diagnosis of saying it's just too easy and too it's so naive to say, oh, it's it's these Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's these, um, some people say, oh, it's these black people. Um, typically it's Muslims these days, but whether it's Jews, blacks, Muslims, gays, um, women, you know, feminists who want equal rights, yep. these kind of things. There's always a scapegoat. It's and a it's scapegoat. O- and yeah, because it's so easy. Weird about, but it's the so thing is, though, is that, like, I think that there is, I think that, and, and we, can, we can wrap this up right away here, but what I was going to say is that, it's funny, though, that now some people are starting to clue in that it has something to do with the entrenched powers, that there's something a little weird about, you know, like the top 60 richest people on Earth owning more wealth than the bottom half, right? Like the bottom three billion or whatever, that there's something weird that, you know, two families in the United States own more wealth than pretty much everybody else combined, at least like the bottom 99%. And I think that when you reflect on that, I think that some people are beginning to point to that as being the root cause and an issue. And that that's definitely a place where like, you know, like social Democrats can step in and be like, so now that we're all on the same page, can we maybe reform taxes and can we maybe start looking at offshore tax havens? But the problem is with these right-wing groups is that they're very much in vogue, they're very much in power, and they very much, not all of them are pointing in that direction. A collection of them are, and even then they mostly just blame Jewish people. Right. But that it's so funny that every scapegoat they take, that, that, that they aim at, couldn't be further from the cause of their malcontents. Mm-hmm. And they only blame Jewish people because they're wealthy. But news, flash, a lot of other people are wealthy. And, and a lot not, of Jews aren't wealthy either. Well, exactly. Like it's, not, it's not a club. Yeah, exactly. Kind of and so that they, they constantly misdiagnose this issue. And and I think it's just like to me the issue that we inflicted on ourselves is we haven't had a, had a real public forum to discuss what our values are for a long time. We haven't really emphasized like, oh, what do we believe in? What do we want to pursue? Other than just pure power and pure economic. Well, in the, uh, in the first pass, the post system has done wonders to to reinforce that and to alienate us from each other. From yeah, liberals from conservatives, mm-hmm. and this is where you get that divide. And nobody wants to talk about a majority, their shared values. You can't do anything because if you break it down to the fundamentals of what our shared values are, if you even start from something like democracy or something mm-hmm. like um, you know uh, 
kind treatment to those less fortunate, like differently abled people and these kind of mm-hmm. things, um, in, in, improving, you know, civil rights for, for... Or even basically, you shouldn't be allowed to extrajudicially, like, kill people, like, for a second, it, third degree murder. Like, j- j- just so like the basics, that's the a, very ground level. That's what I'm saying. If you start there and you have that conversation, well, why do we have the laws that we have? Why can't you, you know, do X or Y? Mm-hmm. Why Why might it be important to have some level of environmental regulation and control? Yeah. Some, just just anything, right? Because even, even like the most like dyed-in-the-wool libertarian will fundamentally admit that like, yeah, you know, if we just let people dump stuff into the rivers, whether it's, you know, waste effluent or, or sewage or, or stuff of this nature, that you can poison other people, what they call third-party externalities or third-party effects. And even they'll acknowledge like, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. Now, they're... Now, their solution to that is completely undoable in which they say, oh, well, there'll be a selection pressure and the market will go against that. Uh-uh, not under capitalism, baby. That ain't happening. Mm-hmm. But what they will say or, or what you can say to that is like, okay, maybe that we can admit that there needs to be some baseline level of control, yeah. um, of regulation rather, and yeah. that that is in itself a public good. And that's what's being left out of this entire conversation is what are public goods? What are public goods? What should be a public good? How do we get more public goods? How do we review them and revisit them and strengthen them? And through all of this, the one thing that would help that would probably help people in terms of economic downturn that might stand to help them in relation to their neighbors is this idea that we all contribute to something that we share in and we all benefit from. But nobody talks about that anymore because of course they go, ah, well that sounds like taxes. I don't like taxes in Alberta. Sounds like Venezuela. Sounds like Venezuela. I want my 10% tax. So I can go and I can buy my Ram 2500 but, with the dually wheels. But why do you think they want? So that I can tow my fifth wheel 40 foot trailer. But this is the with thing, the toy though. hauler because I need two CDs that I can sell in the next economic downturn when I lose my job on the rigs. This is the thing though. They, <laughs> they think that they don't want shared values because they want to pursue their own interest. But what they're missing out on in yeah. their life is everything except for their and the second that thing and the second that things go to shit, they go. Where's my EI yeah. kind of thing? Where's yeah, exactly. my where, where's my employment insurance? Yeah. You know, where where's um where, where where's the people who can help me find jobs kind of thing? Mm. The government needs to fund more pipelines and let them through. It's just like ah, like you're so close, like you're this close to getting it. Why you want this? Mm-hmm. But it's crossing that line that they can't do because, of course, in order to cross that line, they're going to have to essentially. I don't know if it's ignore or dismiss or or admit that it was wrong. Um, you know, 60, 70 years of generational and family embedded understanding of, of, of their political and economic status. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to happen. I agree. Yeah. And uh, I hate to apply Plato to something so contemporary, but I think Plato's theme in his dialogues about people often... You would, wouldn't you? Uh, you goddamn poli-sci students always go into your classic, classic Greek philosopher. Classic move to go to even, the classics. Couldn't even clu- include a trendy one, like Epicurus or something hey, like this. You gotta Plato, go to Plato. Plato's Plato's a classic classic. Classic classic. But all I'm gonna say <laughs> is that he, a constant theme, he said people misidentified, and he proves, I think, in his writing, people, and, and we see it in behavior, People misidentify what's good for them all the time. And mm-hmm. I think what we've seen here is people think, oh, if I just pursue my self-interest at all costs, well, everything else will, will, will come to me. I'll have a little fulfilling life. But what they're missing that shared identity of value in, in society. Hmm. And I think a lot of them have been talked out of it by what you describe as like these um, uh, people who be like, oh, taxes are bad. Venezuela is bad. We get taxes. We get Venezuela. <laughs> and that's what they think. So they've misidentified what's good for them. And they've lost... 
a common, they've lost a common uh, way of existing. And then a few <laughs> decades later, after they've already lost this common way of, of living, a few decades later, you know, you have an increase in Muslim immigrants, and then they're the ones who get blamed. And yeah, I just think we need to reevaluate. We need to come back and talk about these values because the reason that these people can only point to that guy looks like me and he talks like me, so we're in a group together when it's white nationalists. The reason that that's all they can do and all they can say is Western values is because they haven't talked about values seriously for decades. So they just uh. point to some random group and they're like, oh, that's our values. But wait, 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 wait. You're saying all white people that you know share those values? Because I don't think you've thought about the ones that you're trying to pursue. I, we don't, for instance. <laughs> we're, if we're the only two, we're exceptions to that rule. Exactly. Like me existing is already proof that, that, that they've made a mistake. So this is what I want to tease out is like they – they're, they're really, what's the expression about um, when, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, yep. I guess? Yeah. Like, that's what they're doing is, is um, yeah, I really. And they're trying to hammer that square peg into that round hole, and it's just doing way more damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what we need, I think, I mean, some cultural leaders would help who are on on you know the moderate side of things, explaining to people um, what's going on. I mean, I get a lot of these ideas, I have to say at the close here, I, a lot of this comes from Michael Sandel. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a professor at Harvard, and he has a fantastic book called uh, Democracy and Its Discontents. It's about American democracy. He wrote it in, in 2000. He predicted- A lot, a lot of discontents in, in the literary world for titles, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in, in Democracy and Discontents, you can see the interview he did on it on YouTube. It's a half hour interview on the book itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was released in 2018, because the interviewer noticed that he predicted Trump and right-wing populism in that book. Hmm. Uh, and so he brings him back in 2017, 2018-ish, maybe it was 2016, to talk about Trump. Interesting. And uh, Michael Sandel saw this coming because what he sees is is um, what I've described. So let's get really deep into the values on the next episode. And we are going to talk about the, the rise and possible impending victory of the anti-abortion movement on the North American continent. Because what a better way to talk about values, to talk about that one thing in which the values could not be more, more separated by a philosophical and moral gap or barrier. It sounds like fun, honestly. It sounds like a, it sounds like a really good time. I love... Politics these days is all about camps, isn't it? I love talking about incredibly controversial issues in which you could be torn apart and just dragged for having for misspeaking the slightest thing. I love it. It's good. It's good for the soul. It's like chicken soup. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think controversial... Red, red hot chicken soup that burns your esophagus on the way down and then... and then benefits you in the end yeah I I think controversy is important to talk about oftentimes because it's too controversial to talk about you know what I mean like it needs that attention I think well let's do it because it's it's fun and I also I have some stories about the pro-life people on campus that I want to discuss because they are about to become a pretty important fixture of upcoming legal precedent in the province so we'll do that definitely and the pro-life lobbying in the last election is something that I only recently became aware of so that's That's crazy should get some attention for sure let's do it so anyways that has been your look into the underside of power I'm Mark And Sean, thank you so much for tuning in and watching us yet again.